Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Ruron Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Trevor Blake. He's the author of the new book published by New World Library called Secrets to a Successful Startup, a recession-proof guide to starting, surviving, and thriving in your own venture. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Three Simple Steps. He's built three successful startups and sold them for more than $300 million. In light of everything that's been happening with regard to the coronavirus, this is a timely conversation for those who want to have a resilient business that thrives in a volatile world. Get Up Nation, join me in welcoming Trevor Blake to the Get Up Nation show. Trevor, welcome. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Trevor, it's such a privilege to speak with you today. Will you share some about your amazing successes in business to start our show? Well, very unique in, in a sense. So I'm on my fifth company now. So as you mentioned in the introduction, I've sold three. They're in a highly regulated industry, so there's a serious business in the, in the medical field. Started each one for a few hundred dollars and sold them each one for over a hundred million. So as, as businesses, they're successful. But what's unique about them is that in that time, I didn't hire a single employee and I worked from home. In fact, at one point I was working all three businesses at the same time and I never worked more than five hours a day. So it's the combination of a business model whose time has come, I believe, which is why I wrote Secrets to a Successful Startup, because so many startups fail unnecessarily too quickly because they all make the same mistake. 82% make fail because of the same error. And so, you know, when you look around a bookstore or go online, there's really no help for startups. There's just thousands of books written by management consultants that can help you be a better manager or, or better in your career. But when it comes to starting your own business, there really, you know, really isn't anything out there. And at particular this time, I felt we were really overdue for a recession, which is why I used the tagline the recession-proof guide, and that's proving to be the case. There's nothing wrong with recessions. They're actually, I think, the best time to start a company. And so I wanted to get the book out there at the right time, and hopefully it'll be as helpful as 
Yeah, truly you have picked the perfect time. And that brings me to the first sentence of the intro of your book. It reads, Secrets to a Successful Startup is about how to conceive, plan, and launch your own business, one that is resilient enough to survive and thrive in today's marketplace. As somebody dedicated to serving people in the development of resilience, I was hooked at the first sentence. Will you share a little bit more about clearly your expertise in seeing this coming and, and getting this book out in a timely fashion? Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, not, not everybody sees recessions coming, and in fact, you can't. In fact, it's impossible to see it coming. You only know you you can only uh, identify a recession when you are in it. So, but you know, since uh, 1850, there's been 47 recessions in the United States alone, and so we were, you know, it was pretty obvious we were overdue one. Nothing wrong with them. Things go up, things go down. You just have to make sure that you're prepared for it and structured it suitably so that you can ride through that mini storm, if you like. But I think this one was so overdue because of the corporate stock buybacks that have been going on. Mm. All that tax money that was handed to corporations, it was supposed to be invested in growth, but most of it was invested in corporate share buybacks. And of course, that's just recently stopped. The last three months have been the lowest corporate share buybacks in the last four years. And inevitably, that tips the market into a downward spiral. And that's what we're, that's what we're seeing and feeling right now. At least that's my opinion of the whole thing. So in anticipation of that, you know, a lot of, in, over the next year or two, a lot of people will find themselves in a position where they might choose to start their own company or they're in fact forced to because they get downsized, which is a horrible word, but it always comes as a shock to people. And I want people to know that actually this is the best kind of time to start a company because when it's a bull market and you're a small company and you go, let's say you need some manufacturing done and you go to the big manufacturers, they, they don't pay you any attention because you're too small, you're not important to them, they can't make profit out of you. But in a recession, their attitude changes completely. Yes. Instead of shutting the door in, the, in your face, they turn around and say, oh, come on in, I'm sorry, we were brusque before, let me make you a cup of tea, how can we help you? So you're actually in a very strong position in a recession because there's so many available and accessible vendors to help you build a company quickly. You know, we live in a culture of get big fast, and so you have to be structured to anticipate that, and uh, I think there's never a better time. Hmm. And let's get into that then. You celebrate the pioneering spirit in part one of your book. You move right into how to turn a moment of insight into a winning idea. You caution people about pursuing an idea for a business that involves what they enjoy or just have a passion for. Instead, you encourage people to pay attention to what makes them mad. Why is it so important for entrepreneurs to figure out what they want to change as they begin to build their business? You know, I've, I've never met a successful entrepreneur that set out to be a successful entrepreneur, and I include myself in that. I, I didn't grow up wanting to be a successful businessman, but sometimes things get under your skin and they make you mad, and, and it gets to the point where if no one else is going to do anything about it, I may as well do something about it. And that's how all my companies have started, but particularly my first company. You know, I, I, was, I was aware of something happened at a company that I didn't agree with. I wanted to do something about it, and in the end, I had to really, what little money I had, I had to put my money where my mouth was. And it, I think it's true, you know, Richard Branson says, you know, don't bother starting a business unless it's out of a sense of frustration. I think that's a true thing. There's, there's no greater sense of motivation than wanting to fix something that you feel needs fixing or create something that doesn't exist that you wish existed. And, that, you know, the best examples of the most successful companies are like that. You know, Netflix is an obvious example. That, that came into being because the founder of Netflix, you know, got charged a penalty for taking his video back late to blockbusters and not rewinding the tape. And so he thought, there must be a better way of doing this. Why don't we do a sort of like a gym membership whereby you can rent the tape and you can keep it forever if you want. Hmm. Or you can keep changing every week and so you pay a subscription. And, you know, and ironically, a few years later, it's Netflix that then ends up in streaming and takes Blockbuster out of the equation. 
um, doesn't exist anymore. You see that happening all the time now. So I, I do believe that if you want a winning idea, and you know, it's no start in the company if you've just got um, you know another idea or one that already exists or one that's slightly better. I, I work with the Chinese a lot, and they categorize investments in three ways. They say, is it a me too, me better, or me first? And I think to succeed these days, it has to be a me first. Mm. And so, what is the me first idea? Well, really, it's something that needs fixing or something that needs creating. And uh, you know, I think that's your source of inspiration, really. I see. And as you get further into the book, you mentioned about a business plan being a work in progress because business never goes as planned. Just talk about our volatile world, the amount of change that's happening. You write, the secret to success isn't the plan, it's the person holding it. Why is it important to remain flexible and resilient when it comes to a business plan? Well, I think change so fast these days. Technology can put a business, create a business overnight, but it also can create an opportunity that you never, never anticipated. Before I started my first company, I, I was having dinner with the guy, George Rothman is his name. He's uh, not with us anymore, sadly, but uh, he had built Amgen from nothing to 60 billion. So, you know, he's worth listening to. And I was waxing lyrical about this idea I had for my first company. He held up his hand and he said, you know, Trevor, if you don't know what business you're into, you get in the business. Just start and you'll figure it out from there. Mm. And I realized that's perfectly true. So most people's approach to a business plan is that, you know, thought processes, I have to use the business plan to show that I have plenty of MBA speak and that I can impress an investor. And that's not the case at all. The business plan is a process, not a document. And so it's a process you go through when you, you've decided, you've got a great idea, you've decided to incorporate that idea. That's one step that I always think is, is absolutely critical because for the lack of incorporating an idea, ideas fade very quickly and somebody else picks it up and you be kicking yourself later on in life. So once you've incorporated it, then you start the business plan process. And that means getting out and talking to customers, talking to potential vendors, sharing the idea with them, getting their feedback, finding out what else is out there that could be similar or could be improved with your great idea. So it's, it's kind of a process and it should be a lot of fun. And it's certainly not, it's, it's not a case of sitting at the computer and writing a 100-page document. It's about getting out and talking to all the stakeholders who can become part of your, your new venture. And, and that's fun and you learn so much and it's really interesting when you do that process and you get out and talk to real people, which doesn't sound like genius, but it's amazing how many entrepreneurs I talk to who haven't done that. They've just produced a document in the computer and they think they know the business. But when you go out and you actually talk to real people or you go to a trade show and you do a survey with people and things like that, there's lots of different ways of getting uh, feedback. It's amazing how different your business starts to look than the one you thought you were good to build. Mm. And uh, you may get lucky too and see opportunities that you wouldn't have known if you hadn't got out and done that. So it's, it's definitely a process. And I, I've, tried, I've tried in the book and Seekers to a Success Startup to be very careful not to, you know, people are put off by the business plan process. But so, so to make it fun, to show ways to, to provide tools and techniques, to make it fun, but also make it meaningful so that when you finally get to the point where you say, okay, now I have a business plan, you know it inside out. And you can answer any single question that anyone might throw at you. And people who are like that stand out from the crowd, particularly when it comes to investments. Mm. You quote Leon Meganson at the beginning of the portion of the book where you describe business survival. The quote reads, it's not the most intellectual of a species that survives. It's not the strongest that survives. But the species that survives is the one that is best able to adapt and adjust to the changing environment in which it finds itself. What are some of your insights into adapting well to a constantly changing environment when it comes to building business? There's two aspects to it. You know, we, we live in a time where you have to get to that or die now. I mean, all you have to do is walk along a, a high street or, or a shopping mall and look at all the businesses that no longer exist. We all thought would be here forever. Those businesses were structured in a way that 
made it very difficult for them to adapt to changing times, particularly to threats. And you think of companies like Border Books, you know, they were the main the mainstay on the in the high street and they couldn't adapt to the, the internet and they no longer exist or Circuit City. You know, who would have they were they were Circuit City was in the books Good to Great and Built to Last by Jim Collins. We thought they'd be here for you know, another hundred years. Doesn't exist anymore because they they failed to adapt to the changing times where the consumer started to get more power over the purchase decision and they just kept to their own traditional way of doing things. They don't want, they no longer exist. So you have to be adaptable mentally first. But secondly, I believe you can structure your business that allows it to be adaptable. So typically a traditional business would be a hierarchy with lots of junior managers and then some senior managers and then executives with massive titles and all that kind of thing. Well, by the time information about a potential threat gets from the street to the top of that pyramid, it's too late. And it's also been, all the information has been filtered from one person to the next person in order to impress their boss, you know, or to take away the fear because they, they fear they might lose their jobs, etc. So what I propose is a completely different business model for the startup. And it's a bit, I call it a hub model, but it's also called a model of alliance. And it relies on no employment. It relies on contracting with vendors who are experts at, what, at each function or experts at what they do, manufacturing, accounting, distribution, regulatory, sales and marketing. We live in an amazing time where all of that is available to us by the click of a mouse. And we can set up a, a, a fully functioning, a fully rounded, well-rounded business with a team of experts simply by doing you know, a, a group or a model of alliances just through simple contracting. And so that's the business model that I've used. I've used it all five times. Very successful. And the side effect I didn't expect from that business model is it's much more profitable than building a traditional hierarchical structure. So it's the structure that's really important for adaptability but also the entrepreneur's mentality. And uh, there's tools and techniques in the book for what you can do to improve your ability to be adaptable. It's important because if you come from a corporate, if you come from a traditional hierarchy, you come with a, a bit of baggage you have to choose and behaviors, and they don't work in the startup world anymore. You do have to be prepared to change. The Small Business Administration states that new businesses have about a 40% chance of surviving for three years or more, and most failures happen within the first two years. After that, the rate of business slows, but most businesses never make more than about $50,000 in annual receipts. How can entrepreneurs and business owners succeed by strategizing cash flow from the beginning? The non-employer business model is a huge help in that because, you know, the biggest uh, cause of failures is cash flow mismanagement. I, I find when I talk to entrepreneurs, especially new entrepreneurs, there isn't really a strong understanding of cash flow management. People understand cash. They understand revenue, and to an extent, I think, they understand profit, but they don't understand cash flow management. And the, and the problem with that is that you can get caught out really quickly, especially today. So, you know, think of a, a, a fictional example would be, let's say, somebody decided to start a, an online clothes business, an online retailer, and, you know, they set themselves up, they put their, uh, they, they put the website up, they get some manufacturing done to make sure they have enough in some, some inventory. Well, the problem is today, you know, I could contact that, I could go online, go to that retailer, and I could order 20 shirts. And then I can have them shipped to my home, and I can try on all 20 shirts, and they're now used shirts, have lost their value, and send all 20 back. And so managing that type of inventory becomes really difficult in our, in our modern retail world. So you have to put in place processes and procedures, and I would call it a delta of, of access to capital, to help you get through the early days where you really don't yet understand what the demand supply structure is going to be like for your business. So... Most people get caught out in our first two years because of that. You know, we, we over 
we either over forecast and buy too much inventory or we under forecast and don't have enough inventory and we run out and we lose our customers. Once you've lost a customer today, they're gone forever. You know, things have changed dramatically. So the cash flow management is a really key part of the whole thing. And it's easy to learn just as you think for people coming from a traditional hierarchy where they weren't really exposed to that side of the business. It's something that you can, you know, you really need to learn before you start. Once you learn it, then you have a huge advantage over most of the small businesses out there. You've discussed how important it is to earn customers' trust. How can you get to know your clients so well that you know what product and service suits them? Well, the business planning process is the, is the starting point for that because it, it's a tremendous surprise when you get out and talk to who you thought was going to be your, your primary customer and you share your ideas with them and what, what the prototype may look like and the feedback you get tells you that this would have failed if I'd gone out with this without doing that process. So that, that is a really important part. And in, in that part, they become partners rather than customers because they know they've been involved in the startup, they've been involved in the decision-making process. So they ask you this. Initial customers become, you know, your, your partners for the life of the business, really. That's, that's a really important part of it. The second thing is, you know, we live, in a, we live in a day where one bad review can really send you spiraling out of control. So if, if you don't, it's not about keeping customers happy anymore. It's about delighting customers. It used to be said, you know, that a, a happy customer, well, a happy customer would tell maybe six or seven people and an unhappy customer would tell anyone who was prepared to listen how unhappy they were. And we've always known that, but we kind of ignored it in business because people couldn't communicate amongst themselves. You know, it, it wasn't as big a threat. But now, an unhappy customer can tell thousands of people immediately just how unhappy they are with your product. And it works because, you know, people look at reviews and stars and stuff like that, and if they see a thousand five stars but two one stars, the human tendency is to read the two one-star reviews. And um, you, know, you have to be aware of that. So it's really important to delight customers. And if you get something like a one-star review or an unhappy customer, you have to be seen to react to that appropriately. And that's, a, that's quite a skill that you have to learn. It's, a, it's really a, a new style of marketing where you are engaging in a trustworthy relationship with a customer. But the customer doesn't want a lengthy relationship. The customer wants to be delighted by the product and they want a, a way to get to make a very quick, easy purchase decision. And if you can get those two things right, then you build a business quickly. That is so challenging to delight the customer consistently when you know, with social media, people can put negative comments out there so quickly. So how does investing in your customer's ability to be resilient, how does that help your business succeed from your perspective? Everyone who is the recipient of your method of communication in that moment is your most important customer, no matter who it is. And it could be an actual customer who's paying for a product, or it could be the place the customer goes to find your product. That place then is also your most important customer. Or it could be any one of the vendors that's interacting on your behalf with those customers. When you do a model of alliances, what you often take out of the equation is the direct contact between, let's say, me as the entrepreneur and my potential customer, because I've hired sales and marketing vendor contractors, so I do a sales contract for a sales force, or I hire a distributor, and they're distributing my product into the place where previously I would have gone directly myself. So yeah, the, the key thing is with the model of alliances is, to, is the selection of the vendors. And um, for that, it requires a number of, of attributes, obviously analysis and, and track record and history and all of that, and visiting the vendor and getting a feel for them, but mostly it's intuition. It's much more important to hire the right vendor than the least expensive vendor. And most people who I have helped start a company with the model of alliance business model, 
their natural inclination is to go for the cheapest because everyone's concerned about cash. And that's another mistake that people make early on because once you're stuck with a, a vendor that doesn't understand the need to delight your customers, then you're in trouble. I see. Let's talk more about the success mentality. You described the ingredients of a success mentality as including adaptability, discipline, leadership, customer comes first, continuous improvement, and fun. Will you share with me a little bit about the fun that you have in the building of your businesses and now the fun that you're having with sharing your expertise with young entrepreneurs or, or people who are, are trying to experience the same success that you've experienced? It's been a total blast and it continues to be a blast. I, I wish I could take what I feel in my solar plexus and put it in the book and people could just, just tap into that emotion then they know what it feels like when you get it right. I don't see the point of doing anything unless it's fun. So my, I don't believe in vision, vision values, statements, and nonsense like that. And I've got an MBA, but I've never used a single aspect of my MBA to help me in my own business. It helped me in my career, my regular career, but not in my own business. My, I'll call it my mantra, if you like, for all my companies, has been make a positive difference in people's lives. No point going into business unless that's the case. Have fun doing it. No point being in business unless you have fun with it. And then sharing the material and spiritual rewards that come naturally as a result of those two things. And that's been the way, it, it, it's been like that all along. There's no greater feeling to me than when an entrepreneur puts his hand up in some way online or when I meet them at an entrepreneur support group or something like that and says, I need help. I'm working 14 hours a day. My wife is threatening to divorce me because I'm dead, so dedicated to the business. And my kids are, you know, three years older than when I started this and I can't remember any of that three years. And I show them a different way of doing it, which is this basic model of alliances. And then structuring your day into a five-hour workday, that's a very, that's not in speaking to a successful startup, but it's available on my website for free, the practical magic of the five-hour workday. And when you structure like that, then I go back to the entrepreneur and say, how's it going? He's smiling from ear to ear because he's making profits in every measurable possible, but just as importantly, he and his wife have their lifestyle back. So it's about success with balance. It's, it should always be fun. There's, there's no point being an entrepreneur if it's stressful and you're burned out and you're taking antidepressants, and I see that an awful lot. But there's ways to change your current business structure. If, you, if you're listening to this and you're one of those entrepreneurs and you're working 14 hours a day, let me tell you, nine of those hours are a complete waste of time. The brain can't, can't perform at peak levels for any more than two hours at a time. If, you, if you're one of those, then I would say, you know, get the book and pay particular attention to the business model and look at ways that you can change your business model. You don't have to go 100% hub model. You can, you can do like a quasi hub model. So you start to replace the pieces that are causing you the most stress and let, a, let an expert then to take over that for you. And you'll, you'll be amazed at the time you get back and how you get your life back by doing that. So the fun part comes from the, the lack of stress from structuring a five-hour workday, I think. I see. As people read more and more of the book and as people respond to you, can you share some of the other success stories that you're having with the way that you're liberating people out of you know, inefficient or ineffective processes? Yeah, so there's all kind of, it doesn't matter whether you're in, in the business of commerce or whether you're in the business of arts and music. It's a, it, the business itself is irrelevant to finding the right structure and, and getting the right mentality to to do it. The, the most difficult part for entrepreneurs is the discipline part. So by discipline, I mean scheduling. So most people are very poor at discipline. I am myself, I'm a pretty laid back person. So I need, you know, fortunately today we have all these online tools like the one I used with you for this broadcast, uh, the, the online uh, booking tool. And it, it becomes so easy and, and so simple to make schedules these days and not have 
people overlapping and interrupting and all those types of things. So the, the, the schedule discipline, I call it task discipline, schedule discipline, it's almost like a throwback to the old days where we used to make lists and priority boards and stuff like that, except now we do them electronically, etc. To be able to structure two-hour work periods followed by a one-hour distraction period, followed by a two-hour work period, followed by a one-hour distraction period, to, to do that for the general part of the day is an absolute delight. But it's a delight for two reasons, not just because you're only working five hours, but because in those dedicated work periods, it's intense and you're so productive compared to how you used to be when you worked in the corporate office. It's been shown that in all kinds of surveys that in the corporate office, the average person is only productive for two hours and 53 minutes. The rest of the time, they're on social media, on the internet, by the coffee cup, or coffee pot by you know, having lunch or sitting in mindless meetings achieving nothing at all. When you're an entrepreneur by yourself in the hub model, it's just you. It's easy to get burned out. So you have to structure your day that way and for two reasons. One is it keeps your brain at peak performance. The other is that in the downtimes, after a period of really dedicated work, and then you take a distraction period, whatever that may be. I always take my dog for a walk uh, in, the, you know, in the woods nearby. In that distraction period, when your brain is tired, it's at its most creative. It's the opposite of what people think. And the book has lots of, you know, studies, and I think there's four pages of endnotes, so you can go and look at these studies yourself if you want if you want to. But in that distraction period when your brain is tired, that's where the magic happens. That's where you get those breakthroughs, the insights where you go, oh my God, why didn't I think of that before? I've just wasted two hours, I could have just done it this way. That magic happens in the distraction periods. And if you're working in a typical corporate environment, you, you don't get exposed to those quiet times where you're able to get that you know, moment of insight that's worth a life, you know, lifetime of experience. So when you get all of those things happening, that's where you go from, you know, just another company to the magic of having a fun company that's great fun to build, that everyone really enjoys being a part of, that's successful and is making a difference in people's lives. It's only because you structured your day sensibly to allow your brain to achieve two things. One is be productive during the analytical times and be super productive during the distraction times when you get those moments of insight. Mm. You know, I hope whoever buys the book and reads the book, I hope that's what they get from it. And I like to, at the end, you mentioned the power of going out into nature, of some meditation that you do. How has meditation and those times, how does that benefit you during this process? I couldn't imagine my life without it. I started, you know, I come from a family back, I, was, I grew up really poor, and a family that was very pragmatic, so I would never dare use the word meditation in my family environment when I was growing up. And they would have laughed at me if I'd even hinted that I was interested in it. But I was also in, a, it was a time when I was suffering from sectarian bullying. I'm talking about serious stuff, you know, with, with bats and, and shotguns. So to get away from my tormentors, I used to hide in the public library and I hid in the reference section because I knew they were too, they were so dumb, they were never going to go there. And then that's when I started just pulling books off the shelf to kill time. And, and I pulled up a, a biography and then I loved it because it was someone who was in an even worse situation than I found myself. And they, become this hugely successful business person. So, so then I, I got, I just developed a voracious appetite for reading biographies. And then I started to notice, probably after I was like 20 or 30, I started to notice these common behaviors amongst all of these brilliant people. They weren't just entrepreneurs, they were scientists and adventurers. And it was a magical time for me to, to learn that people could overcome, you know, difficulties like I was feeling that I was facing and still have this amazing life. But I noticed these common attributes, and one of the most obvious ones was they all had a method of meditating, even if they didn't call it meditation in their time. Like Henry Ford, you know, you go to his old um, derelict farmhouse where he grew up and he'd sit on a 
a rickety rocking chair and he would just think. He would just, well, he'd just sit there and try not to think. And I, I thought that was magical. So I was also so young and naive. I thought, well, if it works for them, I'll give it a go. And I became sort of addicted to waking up half an hour in the morning before I have to get up. So I, I would wake up half an hour before I would normally wake up. And I, I do 20 to 30 minutes of just sitting in a chair, trying not to think. And I didn't understand the process. I just did it and it changed my life completely. You know, in the book and in Three Simple Steps, I described the process. It's a very scientific process of how the brain behaves during that time when it's trying to, when you're trying to do nothing. A hundred billion neurons are like little kids being let out to play for the first time because for the rest of the time, they have to work really slowly to help us use our electronic devices or for us to, you know, do calls like this where my thoughts are going so fast, but it takes forever for a thought to become a word that someone can understand. When you stop doing all that and you sit quietly for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, it's just a magical, a magical time. And all of the great ideas that I've had, not just for my companies, but for the books and the courses that I do, for my animal rescue, for, for my cancer research and development projects, all of those have come to me just after I take quiet time, as I call it, just after I meditate. Hmm. And so I do recommend it. It's very, it's actually takes quite a bit of courage to write business books and suggest people meditate. But I, in the business books, especially in Secrets to a Successful Startup, I think, you know, I do quote a good half dozen really famous, well-known house, household names of successful entrepreneurs who are all finally sort of coming out of the closet and saying, hey, you know, I confess I'm a meditator too. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting that some of the most successful people, particularly in the West, now will admit that I get all my best ideas when I meditate. Mm -hmm. Trevor, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Who are you thankful for today? My wife and my mother, who introduced me to my wife uh, 40 years ago. That they're such strong female spirits with fantastic, well, my mother unfortunately died when I was 21, but uh, from cancer, that they had such strong knowing, as I call it, they just know stuff. And they taught me, my mom used to tell me, she said, stand up to all of the world and now you can be anything you want to be. And when she was telling me this, you know, she was dying of cancer and we lived in a derelict farmhouse. But I believed her, and I saw in her eyes what indefatigable looks like, and it stayed with me forever. And then when I was taken for a chemotherapy one day, the nurse came out of the side ward, and they hugged, and I could tell they had a bond. And I was just, you know, struck by Cupid's arrow, and we're still together. And so my wife and my mother are by far the biggest inspirations that anyone could ever wish to have. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? Gosh. Quick answer to that, I'm grateful for everything. I'm, I just, I'm, I'm so lucky, I'm blessed. I live, I live a fantastic life and I'm able to pass on, I'm able to lead by example and pass on some good tips to other people so that they don't have to go through the trial and error process like I've had to. You know, they can just pick my books up or do my courses and, and off they go and have fantastic lives. So to be able to do that, have that kind of impact or influence, is a great honor, I think. It's a very, very, humbling, very humbling situation that I'm very I'm grateful for. How do you fuel the fire within you? Meditation, definitely. Uh, very careful about what I allow into my, through my senses. So I don't watch sensational TV headlines. I don't watch shoot em up movies and I have no social media other than private Facebook groups, which is sort of safe haven for everybody. And you can join them if you go to my website, you can join those private groups. I'm pretty careful of how I interact with the, the everything's energy. So I'm pretty careful of how I interact with that energy by making sure that what I feed myself in terms of the stuff I read, the things I see, 
the things I hear that I protect myself from, all of those techniques for doing all of those things, by the way, are in the books too. You know, I, I, think, I think it's very important to prepare for success. So organized success is fleeting. So if you prepare mentally and physically for your anticipation of success, you get there quicker or it comes to you quicker. And when it arrives, your, your sense of emotion changes. Not you, You'd expect to be excited and jumping up and down, but it's not. It becomes one of gratitude. And then you go and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? My the strength of character that there is nothing that can break you if you choose not to be broken. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? Nothing, because I always, always talked to myself and told me that I can be anything that I want to be. Whatever my mother told me, I told myself after she told me. So um, if anything, I, I feel like I've underperformed. So, you know, I could, have, I could have started my company sooner. I didn't start my first company until I was 43 because I was having such a good time traveling the world. So just, just, I don't have any, there's no, at no point would I say, oh, I have a regret. That I wish I could have done something different. So everything I've done has been fantastic. Everything that's been the outcome of what I've done is what I anticipated. And that's one of the things I teach about the difference between goals and intentions. But we all have goals, but they don't really get you that far in life. But when you have an intention and you focus on the intention, you go through three stages of belief. You, you believe a little bit, or you desire a little bit, then you believe a little bit, and then you know you're gonna get there. And when you know, that's the magic part of it. When you know you're going to get there, or it's coming to you, when it arrives, you're expecting it anyway. So, so you don't get that sense in your head of, wow, I'm doing something I never anticipated, because you've created a mindset, new neural pathways, neuroplasticity is taking place, so that when you get to where you probably at the moment can't imagine, when you finally get there using intentions, it's where you're expected to be anyway. Love that. How can people learn more about you and your amazing work? Very simple. And so the, everything, everything I do is, is also like the model of alliances. So if you go to my website, trevorgblake.com, just my name, trevorgblake.com, there's a free download, The Practical Magic of the 5-Hour Workday, which everyone's getting a real kick out of They're resonating with it. But I do believe we live in a, a time when it's possible to go back to the way we used to live before the Industrial Revolution changed everything. And then from there, you can look at some courses that are, that are extremely popular and fantastic testimonies. So there's courses you can do or the books you can buy. But I also do you know, loads of blogs, podcasts, and they're all free and available. Awesome.